1995, nerve gas release in a Tokyo subway killed eight and injured hundreds. What do you know about the significance of nerve gas in war and in peace? You're listening to a special segment on disaster medicine on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Richard Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. At Jackson Memorial Hospital, he's a toxicologist and director of the Florida Poison Information Center, Miami. He was awarded France's Distinguished Medal of Merit for his international work in this area, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Today we're discussing nerve gas from a historical as well as a present-day perspective. Welcome, Dr. Wiseman. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about nerve gas. What is it and how does it work? Well, the nerve gases are very, very potent pesticides. And what they do in the body is they have the ability to bind to the various cholinesterase enzymes, inhibit the metabolism or block the metabolism of acetylcholine so that as it's released at the various nerve endings, it gets into the synapse but then can't be destroyed so that one basically sees cholinergic crisis or cholinergic excess as a result of exposure to the nerve agents. And describe for our audience again, clinically, what would they see? Clinically, the first thing that you're likely to see with a minimal exposure is that as it has a chance of getting to the eyes, the person's immediately going to end up with meiosis. And the meiosis is so intense that the patient's likely to experience pretty significant eye pain. The next thing is that they end up with a full cholinergic picture, which is the classic sludge reaction, salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation. The patient is going to appear to be totally wet. What's actually going to kill them is that they end up secreting tremendous amounts of fluids into their lungs, and it prevents oxygenation and ventilation. And you also have paralysis and spasm of the pulmonary musculature so that when rescued people come up and they intubate the patient, they'll find that it's an extraordinarily difficult patient to try to ventilate. So hypothetically, how might this nerve gas be released? Well, the nerve gas can exist as either a gas or a liquid, depending upon the ambient temperature, so that it can be sprayed or released as a gas. Most of the time, it would have to be in a closed space to allow it to accumulate in a high enough concentration for the person to actually be exposed to it, so that if it would be released in the midst of a football field, probably very few people would come in contact with it, only those that are immediately in contact with the gas plume. How were nerve gases discovered? I think they were discovered as part of the extension of very, very potent pesticides that probably the person that made the horrible mistake of synthesizing it in the lab was found dead along with two or three of the other people working in the laboratory. And when they finally figured out what the person had made, they then had the recipe for a very, very super potent nerve-type agent. So because of the potency, they were actually probably never used as pesticides? Absolutely. There would be no commercial use for something this strong. Was it used as a weapon in earlier wars? Theoretically, it was used during World War One and World War Two. although there's a little bit of controversy on that. There's also some thought that Saddam Hussein may have used it against some of the dissidents in his country. Have you ever seen any evidence to that? I mean, the television has, has pictures of bodies lying there, and have you ever heard anything scientifically or historically that makes you believe that really happened? I believe so, and I, I think that one of his associates, I think it was Chemical Ali, they actually found materials and I think have some testimony that, in fact, a fairly large number of, of 
people were exposed, I believe, the uh, Kurd population. Did America ever use it in World War I or World War II? Not to my knowledge, no. And strictly, it's prohibited by all the Geneva Conventions and things, so hopefully not. Do people in other countries have access to it? I read that it was used as a form of suicide in some developing countries. Well, in a lot of the Far East, the organophosphate pesticides are the number one cause of suicide, largely because of its availability to a large percentage of the population that are farm workers. Are they actually killing themselves with nerve agents? No. Very few people would have access to them. Do you believe cholinergic drugs were a cause of the Gulf War syndrome? Is there any evidence for that? What they were doing, particularly the, the, the fighter pilots, is that they were exposing them to small amounts of another cholinesterase inhibitor called pyridostigmine that could be reversed with protopam very quickly. And what they were doing is they were tying up a lot of their cholinesterase with the pyridostigmine. And then if the person was exposed to the nerve agent, the nerve agent would not displace the pyridostigmine from the cholinesterase enzyme, but then they were able to reverse it with the protopam. So that what it did was it put some of the pilot's cholinesterase in reserve. What we know is that this is not something that was tested very well, and there is a possibility that it was responsible for at least some of the illness attributed to the Gulf War. Certainly, there are large numbers of people that develop the Gulf War syndrome that did not have this exposure. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to a special segment on disaster medicine on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Wiseman from the Poison Control Center in Miami. We're discussing some of the historical perspectives of nerve gas. So do you think today with this kind of history, primary care doctors should be concerned about a nerve gas as an agenda for a terrorist attack? I mean, the physiology is really interesting, but is there going to be anything left for us to treat? I think that what the primary physician is likely to see is large numbers of people that are absolutely scared out of their socks. And what happens is that the people that are truly exposed are going to be dead or going to be near dead at the point that they're resuscitated and they're going to end up in intensive care units. There's probably going to be a perimeter of people that have minimal symptoms um, that respond well to single doses of atropine and protopam. And I think those are all going to be, again, predominantly hospital-based cases. But what's going to happen is that terrorism is going to do what terrorism does, and it terrorizes people so that it is likely to increase the tremendous anxiety within a society. It's got to increase the risk of heart attacks and chest pain and all of that. And I think that that's where the, the primary care physician is likely to come in place. I think it's also important for the primary care physician to be familiar with what real nerve agent poisoning looks like, what the symptoms are, which consist predominantly of the cholinergic things, so that they're able to reassure people that they've not been exposed by the absence of these symptoms. So did Japan, do you think they learned from this what they did right and wrong? Did they share any of this with the medical community outside their country? Absolutely. And, and probably the biggest lesson that was learned is that there were hundreds of people that self-referred for medical care that truly were not exposed. And this has a tendency of clogging up the healthcare system. And I think that there would be a real role for the primary physicians to be able to kind of step in and help their patients to 
separate out who needs to go to the hospital and who doesn't. Were Japanese healthcare professionals injured by the patients that weren't correctly detoxed before they came in? Yes, and what happened is that they were taken from a relatively cold environment of outside into a warm emergency department, and what happened was that the liquid that had soaked some of the victims' clothing began to convert into a gas, and I think at that point is, is why you had such a large number of healthcare providers that became secondary victims. I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that the U.S. Army dumped 32 tons of nerve and mustard gases into the ocean waters off the United States. This was a 1998 report by William Brankovich, a deputy project manager in the U.S. Army Chemical Materials Agency, and that they created dump sites in off of at least 11 states. But speaking just as a toxicologist, what would the effect be on ocean life and reef in the area? Well, it would certainly be a safer place to put it than to put it into the air. I think most of these chemicals hydrolyze or react with water very, very quickly, and that that actually helps to destroy a lot of it. If this is true, and I'm not absolutely certain of that, I think that someone would need to do an environmental impact study to to really make sure that it's safe to do. It doesn't sound like something that would be particularly good for the ocean. So it's technically difficult then to, to launch a nerve gas attack? It really is because it requires a fairly large amount of chemical and it requires that the people that are going to be exposed are pretty much in a closed space or it will dissipate with the wind fairly rapidly. It makes a good terrorism agent because it's not necessary to kill large numbers of people. You certainly are able to achieve their desired effects of terrorizing people and increasing anxiety and fear levels dramatically by simply affecting a few people. So you think America's overreacting or not really? It's been used historically. It's been used in war. It happened at least once. It could happen again. Is that correct? It's easier to say that you're overreacting until it happens, and then everybody says, my gosh, why didn't we think about this? It's certainly there. It's one of the threats. It's one of many threats that we face, and I think that the more time we take to prepare for any of the potential threats, the more likely we are to be prepared when a real event does occur. Or hopefully we're able to go through our lives and look back at the end and say, gosh, we prepared for a lot of things that we really didn't need to, but that's probably okay also. How does it compare to anthrax in terms of reality check and what really we could expect? I would say that anthrax would be a lot easier to both obtain and to utilize than with something like the nerve agents. Number one, they're difficult to work with, they're difficult to obtain, they're difficult to control and release. Whereas anthrax is largely available, it it exists as a pathogen that one can find among many farm animals. And a good microbiologist would easily be able to culture anthrax. What then has to happen is that it has to be weaponized to be able to disperse it, and that becomes a little bit more tricky. So that, that also is relatively limited as to the number of people that would be able to do it, but certainly nations that are investing large amounts of money in terrorist programs would probably easier be able to come up with a weaponized anthrax than be able to come up with a nerve agent. From all your years of work and experience, and I know you've trained hazmat groups across the country, you've worked internationally with toxins, what would be your message to physicians listening to this today in terms of biological threats? the near horizon, what message would you like to give them? Probably spending a little bit of time each year reviewing the more common agents, how they would present, how they would be treated, what would be needed is probably worthwhile. I know that 
everybody is competing for physicians' time. There's so much to learn, and there's so much new material each year. If you're taking the threat as it might really occur, it's probably worth devoting a couple hours a year to, to just refreshing your memory on the various toxins and how they would have to be treated, and also become familiar with how to obtain information rapidly. And again, the CDC has a wonderful website on bioterrorism, and if you're able to access that, that may be all that would be needed because within a few minutes, you can get the necessary just-in-time training. And to go to that website, they access CDC and terrorism? Correct, or bioterrorism. Dr. Wiseman, thank you for being my guest today, and we've been discussing nerve gas, the historical and modern-day perspective. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special segment on disaster medicine on ReachMDXM 157. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.